Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Guru, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Ben Golliver of Sports Illustrated, one of my favorites. And we start out with the Clippers, which is a story that I think we both feel is underappreciated. I, I in particular, it was something I wanted to talk about with him. Then we talk about the Laker drama a little bit, about what it could mean for them more in the long term than the short term, because their short term is a, is a lot less relevant than their long term. Then we also talk about the Eastern Conference, and that's really what the second half of the conversation is about what we could see, what we want to see, and things like that. And the whole conversation runs about an hour or 20, I believe. And if you are interested in timestamps, those should be in the, I guess it would be the description of this. So if you want to hear something specific, though, I recommend, of course, the whole conversation. So hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Danny. How's it going, man? It's doing well. Uh, apparently, we'll, we're going to be talking about the less culturally relevant Los Angeles t- team right now, and we'll talk a little bit about the Clippers to start off with. And you and I talked a little bit late last week, and for me, one of the lingering stories moving forward is the reintegration of Blake Griffin. Well, there's no question about it, and they finally have a return date, which I think, you know, even though they played pretty well, especially early uh, without him, and they played pretty well without him uh, in his last couple game stretch, it couldn't come soon enough. I mean, they have to have Blake in the lineup. You just look no further than Chris Paul and the kind of burden that he's been carrying and the insane numbers that they, he's been putting up when he's on the court versus when he's off the court. I mean, they've been counting down for this day, and they finally have it. I think he's going to make his debut on Sunday, which gives him, what, like 10 days to get ready before the postseason? I think that's crucial because that, that first-round opponent's still up for grabs. You know, it could be Memphis. It should be Memphis. Uh, but Portland's trying to make a late charge into it. The Grizzlies have two games against the Warriors, you know, right at the end, which could drop them pretty quickly because uh, the Warriors are going to be going for 73. So to me, if you're the Clippers, you don't want to be that sort of vulnerable team that's figuring itself out playing against a first-round team like Portland where they've got nothing to lose and lots of firepower. Uh, you don't want to be in that situation. I mean, you want to have Blake up to speed a little bit, and I think they're going to have a chance to do that. Is your instinct that, Seeing how the team floundered without Chris Paul out there, you know, when he's been shouldering this heavy load, which I think is an incredibly important point in all this, will make Doc reconsider the idea of, you know, staggering their minutes a little bit just to have somebody who can really buoy the second unit? 
Maybe. I think the one thing that Doc keeps harping on, and he said this after a game recently when they, they kind of smacked the Celtics, and he was actually really talking up his bench unit. You know, he was really giving them a lot of credit for how well they played and, and the points that they put up and kind of, you know, everybody's had to step up into larger roles. So however you kind of portion out those minutes, I mean, he's getting contributions from lots of different guys, you know, much bigger contributions than he was getting earlier in the season. And it's totally out of necessity, but how well does that transform into the playoffs? I think that's the open question because, uh, you know, you've got some of these guys, you know, Austin Rivers, Jamal Crawford's, you know, been pretty inefficient. Uh, you know, you've got giant question marks every single night from Wesley Johnson, uh, from Luke Richard, Abba, Mute, uh, you know, right on down the list, Jeff Green, you know, the latest addition. I mean, all of these guys are basically, uh, in my mind, at least offensively unreliable. And really, that's where Blake comes in, right? And the big question is, does he have his jumper ready uh, in time for the playoffs? Like, is he able to shake off some level of the rust where he can actually have that aspect to his game? Uh, because if he doesn't have a passable mid-range jumper, he becomes a lot more, a lot, a lot easier to defend. It's a lot more straightforward process defending him. Uh, and then, you know, on top of that, th- their court gets a lot tighter. You know, the spacing isn't quite there as much as it, as it needs to be. And so now you're losing stuff from DeAndre. You're losing stuff from Chris Paul. You're maybe losing stuff from some of those wings who have been enjoying the benefits of greater spacing, you know, in recent games. So, yeah, I think that they really, the whole season for them basically comes down to does Blake have his jumper and does that allow all those role players who have kind of been stepping up to kind of settle into more natural uh, situations where they're not asked to be doing too much uh, against playoff foes. Yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff to unpack there, but one of the things that I've noticed is also, the, you talked about the spacing for the wings, and I agree with that, is also that it is is increased the spacing and the availability for DeAndre and Chris Paul pick and rolls because they just, you defend them so much differently when they have a, a credible three-point shooter out there because Paul is so good with the ball in his hands that you, as a defender, you know that if you leave your guy, he's going to find that player. And... Blake has many gifts and one of those, you know, one of those isn't necessarily hitting an open jumper when they, when they concede that. What I've noticed over this time, and it wasn't really a revelation because I, I felt this way for a while, is that Blake Griffin is a wonderful basketball player. His biggest strength is his ability to initiate and facilitate the offense and doing that in an unusual position, power forward. The problem for the Clippers is, they already have a guy who does that better than he does in Chris Paul, and that's why I've advocated for the stagger for a long time. And that doesn't mean you're using Blake Griffin as a backup. Far from it. You still play him starter minutes. He's a starter caliber guy. You just make sure that he's that his kind of in a way his primary job, other than closing games, is being on the floor to shoulder the load when Chris Paul isn't. Yeah, I think you've got two things that you can use to support that theory, that hypothesis. Uh, you know, number one, you can look at the on-off numbers, which we talked about, which is basically when Chris has been on the court since the All-Star break, the Clippers have the number one offense in the league. When he's off the court, they have the number 30 offense in the league by a mile. So that tells you right there, you could use, you could plug in Blake Griffin's playmaking and passing ability and initiation skills and all that into that second unit, and there's no way it, it, it gets worse. You know, it certainly would get better, substantially better, anytime he's on the court when Chris is not on the court. So that's number one. And I think, you know, number two, and just, you know, kind of bigger picture, it's like conditioning wise, where is Blake going to be? I mean, last year, even though he was healthy, basically in the postseason, he was running himself to exhaustion constantly in the first round series against the Spurs. And I think it was an issue as the playoffs, you know, kind of unfolded from there and their collapse. 
now he's coming off of months sidelined. We're talking like three solid months on the sideline. Uh, I've watched him, you know, go through some pretty light pregame workouts before some recent games. I mean, he looks like he's moving smoothly, you know, but this is a guy who other than maybe Russell Westbrook and a few other players is harder on his body over the course of a given game. And also, you know, other people are hard on his body too, because he takes a lot of contact uh, over the course of a playoff game, especially, you know, is he going to be able to go zero to 60 conditioning wise and how many minutes is he going to be able to handle right off the bat, you know, right into the playoffs? And, you know, Doc conceded that point last week. He said, we've got to get Blake into shape, and we don't know how long that's going to take. It was basically the gist of his message. And that's not a direct quote, but that's sort of what he was saying. And so, you know, for the playoffs, again, you know, some of these teams, like if you're matched up against Memphis, those guys are big, they're physical, I and mean, they're going to come at you. You know, no days off for Zach Randolph. Same thing with Portland. I mean, you really need Blake to win his matchup against the Blazers because you have, you know, big time advantages uh, in the interior against a, a younger and less proven team. But if Blake can only be out there for 25 minutes uh, or he gets tired in the fourth quarter and he's wavering, you know, that's going to be a big, big question mark. And that could potentially set up the Clippers, you know, for a first round upset. I think of the of the top four seeds in the West, the only one that I could really envision getting upset in any sort of former fashion right now is the Clippers. Yeah, which is a big difference from the East, where I could basically see any of them getting knocked out by the right opponent. And some of that's just where the disparity lies in the conferences. The East is just a little bit, the mix is a little bit higher in in everything than in the West. But one of the other dynamics with Blake Griffin, in this sense, is that something that Nate Duncan and I have talked about on Dunked On fairly frequently is that in the last year or two in particular, regular season Blake Griffin and playoff Blake Griffin have looked pretty meaningfully different. You know, he's been saving something, which is fine. You know, there there are certain times when it'd be nice to see him go, you know, go all out a little bit more frequently, but I understand that, especially if he doesn't have it in the same way. And as we all know, Father Time is undefeated. But so he's not only going from zero to 60, he's going from zero to 60 in into what he, like, what he would usually work his way into, not from a physical standpoint, but more from a mental standpoint. And that's probably an even harder adjustment for him. Oh, for sure. And I mean, also think about all the pressure and just the guilt, you know, let's not overlook the guilt factor. I mean, imagine if you were the franchise player for the Clippers. I know it's hard to do. I mean, I try to put myself in these guys' positions just to think through all the the various angles, but I mean, you know, he's got to be harder on himself for that punch than anybody else could possibly be harder on him. You know, like I, and my first reaction to you know that situation I think I went after him a little bit. You know, I think in, the, in what I wrote, I was I was pretty hard on him. But when I was writing it, I was just thinking, like, there's no way this should bother him because you know as a competitor and as a leader and sort of a face of a franchise, he's going to hold himself to a higher standard than anybody on the outside could ever hold him. So not only is he trying to get his body back into shape, not only is he trying to fit in with a team that sort of was morphing its offense without him, not only is he ramping up for the intensity of the postseason, which is always a lot of pressure that just can't be replicated in the regular season, and not only is he trying to overcome a really catastrophic collapse in the postseason last year to the Rockets, but he's all trying to do that while not being the fall guy for their season. Because if they fall out in the first round or if they go out quickly in round two, everyone's going to point back and say, look, Blake, if you hadn't punched that team employee and missed so much time – we would have had a better chance in the postseason. And he knows that, I think, better than anyone. 
Uh, and that's just one more le- level of intrigue for this team going into the playoffs. And his personal stakes might actually be bigger than that, assuming he wants to be in L.A. long-term, which is, of course, something we never know. I- I've talked before about how a, thir- a guy's third contract is when you really find out what they prioritize. But he has moved, from what I can tell, and you would know better, but I think he has moved down in the pecking order, at least off the pedestal maybe he was on. And when one guy runs, is the coach and is the team president, if he sours on you even a little bit, that makes it really hard to get back. And, you know, he has the ability, he has the time, he has, he built up a lot of goodwill. So it's not like it's this, you know, you're in the doghouse, you're going to be in the doghouse forever type deal. But his status as a long-term member of this franchise is more questionable than it has ever been. I totally agree. Just because prior to this situation, I don't think it was questionable at all, right? Like there was no question. He's just going to be there and whoever else is going to be around him is going to be around him. I thought the bigger question before this whole incident was just, you know, when do you cut ties with Chris? When do you decide, you know, uh, to sell high on him because he's starting to get older and and you want to go younger building around Blake? I mean, that was always the way to frame it. And I do agree that you have this alternate interpretation now where it's like you've seen the Chris Paul, J.J. Redick, and DeAndre Jordan trio works so well without Blake that if you can sell high on Blake, assuming that he has, you know, a solid playoffs and all that, you can have a really, really good team and maybe a deeper team, depending on the package you get back uh, than you currently have. So, yeah, I think that's totally fair to say he's been maybe softer ground or shakier ground than he's ever been before. But I do think the way that Doc handled the trade deadline showed a pretty significant degree of trust and respect for Blake. It didn't seem like it was antagonistic. He really tried to shoot down the rumors pretty hard publicly. There wasn't the, oh, it got really close, you know, none of that stuff. And that matters, too, because I think that would have been the smoke if there was a real, you know, a real chance for a fire here short term. I think you would have already started to hear some of that during the trade deadline. And and Doc was pretty aggressively going the other way, even though he was the same guy who said the core might have to get broken up before the season started, right? So if he wanted to kind of plant those seeds, I think he could have kept planting them, and I I didn't really see that during the trade deadline. Going to take a quick break from the conversation with Ben Golver to tell you about SeatGeek. As somebody who used to be in the ticket business, I was a ticket broker buying and selling tickets all around North America, I can really appreciate how special SeatGeek is as an app, and there are a couple big reasons for it for me personally. One is that it is an aggregator, so you don't have to worry about there being better deals somewhere else. You can go use the SeatGeek app, and you know that you're seeing what is available, and also... Because of the way they do pricing, they put in the fees at, at the beginning so that you can compare apples to apples, so you don't have to worry about how much it's going to jump. So not only the sticker shock issue, but just in terms of comparing tickets, you can do a fair comparison. And also, SeatGeek gives grades to tickets, both, you know, if we can think about it from a buyer's standpoint or a seller's standpoint, with the deal score, so you can know whether you're getting a good deal or a bad deal, and a seller can know the same thing. So it, it can give motivation both ways. And as we're moving into a part of the season in basketball where tickets are going to be more to premium and where they're going to be, you're going to have to you know work hard to try to find good deals. Having something like SeatGeek is a great option for you. And to make it an even better option, you can use the promo code REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M. And so what you do is you download the free SeatGeek app, you go to the settings tab, you go to apply promo code, and it's R-E-A-L-G-M, no spaces, all caps. And that will give you a $20 rebate on your first purchase. So the way that works is you use the app, you download it, put in the code, and then when you make a purchase, they will give you they will give you $20 back after you make the first purchase. So 
it's a, a great scenario. You get to use the app, hopefully find something that you can enjoy as much as I do. You get $20 back, and you let them know where you came from. So you support Real Jam Radio, and that allows us slash me to keep going. So do hope you do that, whether it's for baseball, concerts, whatever you want to do. And we'll get back to the conversation with Mr. Ben Galbert. Yeah, I think he's he's focused a little bit short term. Obviously, when you trade a first round pick for Jeff Green, you're you're thinking short term in that way. But and so you want to you know make the best of the situation. And I doubt they got any real great offers for him at that time, though. I assume they will this summer if they're really interested in moving him. And you know, I I raised some ire when I wrote the Chris Paul piece for the Sporting News earlier this season, and. What I've seen coming, and there has been nothing that has changed that for me, is the idea that this team has an expiration date. And for me, that expiration date is July 1st, 2017, just because there's so many things that are outside of their control. And why I wrote the Chris Paul piece, despite thinking Chris Paul is an amazing player, is if, and that's a huge if, if your goal is to win a championship, this group isn't good enough to do it, in my opinion. Just not because of any misgivings on their part, just because they're better teams than them. And so my idea was you need to move on from that and sell high on whoever you can. But I understood and always did why it was never going to happen because it's one of the downsides of having a coach and a team president and all that. And, you know, the, we've seen what as Nate and Jason Concepcion coined it, you know, the Rock Divers problem of this team is that, they're thinking about it in this very different way, which made it so that a move like moving Blake or moving CP was never really going to happen this soon. Yeah, I mean, going back to that Jeff Green trade, there is like an element of, I don't know if you want to call it denial or kind of talking yourself into a reality that maybe doesn't exist, right? I mean, they're clearly thinking they've got to take their shot this year. And it's possible that the very best thing to happen for these Clippers is that they get swept by the Warriors in sort of resounding fashion in the second round. I mean, that that really could be the wake-up call that they need to kind of completely dismantle or at least meaningfully dismantle and go a different direction. Because I'm with you. Uh, I'm not sure that I see the ceiling. I don't think Chris can play much better than he did this season going forward. He's had an unbelievable year, and it's starting to show a little bit. And I even think when you look at the, the announcement of withdrawing from the Olympics, I mean, I think some of that, you know, he, he mentioned his body in his statements to Lee Jenkins, and uh, he's constantly talking about their schedule. You know, after games, he's always talking about weird schedule quirks. Why do we have this many back-to-backs? I mean, he's talking about it like a guy who's feeling the miles. You know, he was asked, how does it feel to play less than, like, I think it was 30 minutes in back-to-back games because they had – uh, won both handily, and he looked like the happiest guy in the world just considering the idea that he might one day be able to play you know, under 30 minutes a night because Doc's been riding him so heavily without Blake. So to me, you know, those are, those are early warning signs uh, you know, going forward, whether it's next year or the year after. And sometimes you just need to snap out of this you know, same old funk that they've kind of been in for a couple of years. And I think you know, the easiest way to do that would be the Warriors just smoking them off the court and I think the second easiest way maybe would be a first-round exit where you know, they just get, get beat by a team that's more cohesive or maybe a team that's deeper potentially, depending on how it shakes out with the rosters. But I think they need something to kind of convince Doc that this is not the current way. Because anytime you're trading for Jeff Green, you, know, you think you still have a shot. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And one of the other weird things about the Clippers in this way is, you know, I've talked about the idea of, you know, breaking it apart and all that, is that there is a very real chance that the two guys that still need to re-sign in the near future would both come back. You know, it's they're not in the situation where, let's say, Oklahoma City is, where, 
you're thinking about it on the idea of, you know, oh, they might want something else or, you know, you, you see that kind of an expiration date as a possibility. I'm not saying it's definite, but it's possible. The idea with the Clippers is just, do you want to make the necessary commitments if that came to pass? And the other part for me with that, which is the criticism of Doc Rivers as a general manager, is that they haven't done a really good job building or either around the weaknesses and strengths of their core, but also in a way they've never done a particularly good job of building a solid second unit when Doc the GM obviously knows that's what Doc the coach prefers to do. It and so if you're not gonna, you know, integrate and do the things like we talked about with Blake Griffin, okay, that's fine. Then you build a very specific second unit. And they've never really done that, which is mind boggling to me. Yeah, I mean, they're just throwing pieces against the wall, it seems like, with the second unit a lot of times. And it's funny, I mean, some of the stuff is sticking. Like, I didn't think Cole Aldrich was going to give some level of good minutes this season to a team that had championship positions. You know, like, I, that wasn't something I foresaw last summer. And there's been times where, like, they've actually really needed him. And he's, like, been not horrible. But, you know, that's not going to do it. And I think he's had some roster building issues. Uh, for the last couple of years, I know we talked about it going back to last summer. You know, the number of course corrections that they've made to, like, you know, adding Lance and subtracting Lance, that or adding Josh Smith, subtract, subtracting Josh Smith, it's really tough to compete with teams that are machines like Golden State and San Antonio where they're so clearly identified what they're trying to do on both sides of the ball, and they're so good at it, and they're so cohesive, um, and they almost – didn't Quinn Snyder call the Warriors like a virus, or like you know something like that, where they're they're moving as one? Yeah, he had he had something like that. Yeah, yeah, he had a line like that. I mean, you, you can't compete with that if you're constantly changing the faces who are around your core guys, and if you're you know you can't settle on your five man lineup. So maybe you know I can see a situation where they're starting multiple different starting lineups against the Warriors uh, in the second round series, and if you haven't figured out who your guys are. And you're almost doing it because you're forced to, like you're changing your starting lineups because you're forced to, because things aren't working, because you don't have five reliable pieces. You're not going to be on those teams' level. And those teams are also so deep, and they some of that is through draft picks. And what's remarkable about L.A. is that I actually think, given their limitations, especially after DeAndre came back, they did a really nice job of talent acquisition, I guess would be the right word for it, given their limited financial resources. Paul Pierce for the taxpayer mid-level was one, I, I've said before that I think he's the best player ever to sign for the taxpayer mid-level, which isn't an illustrious thing because it's only this CBA. Cole Aldridge for the minimum, I really liked it. He's done, I would say he's done about what I expected. I had higher hopes for him than almost anybody. Wesley Johnson, nice pick for that. You know, you, you got guys like that and Josh Smith, it didn't work out, but it's not like they invested a ton into him. So they did that. It's just that you have to, you know, those teams like the Warriors and all that, they're adding pieces, let's say, 8 to 11, whereas the Clippers are doing it more 5 through 8. And it's hard to do that when you don't have those type of resources, especially when you don't draft very well. Totally, yeah. And it's almost like maybe, you know, 3 through 8 or or 4 through 8 now that they've had some of these injuries, right? Because some of these guys are getting put into these big roles or bigger roles than they anticipated. And that's why Blake coming back is so big. I mean, I keep coming back to this. Everybody was asking, like, are they better with or without him? And to me, there's just really no question because once you're in situations where you've got to be able to scale up your lineups or scale down your lineups, you're in the postseason and, you know, you need guys to create shots because the game's slowing down uh, and all the defenses are locked in. I mean, you just need that pure talent factor. The drop-off between Blake and, you know, the Clippers' second-tier talent is massive. 
you know, and you can harp on Doc for not getting the right players or not getting good enough players. You can say, well, his hands were tied, so he got the best he could. I mean, either way, it, it doesn't really matter. It's an obvious, obvious gap. And so, you know, they're going to have to ride or die with Blake, basically. And I think, again, it goes back to the pressure that's on him. Who do you think they would rather see? I think it's kind of an interesting question. If you're the Clippers, would you rather play the Grizzlies uh, or would you rather play the Blazers? Portland has so much more talent right now. It is true that Memphis could add back, you know, let's say if Connolly can return or things like that. But they can't, you know, so let's say if you believe, like I believe, that the Clippers offense is legit and they can score, I don't see a way that Memphis scores enough points to beat the Clippers in a series. You know, like they could win a game or two, you know, just by guile and effort and good coaching. I think Jaeger's done a really underappreciated job since basically the entire team fell apart. But that's not enough to win a series. Incidentally, Memphis was on the other side of that last year. And I think that if you don't have that kind of a talent, kind of a talent level, you're not going to be able to beat a team like the Clippers. And yeah, Portland has flaws, but Portland has a nice home court advantage and two guys that can carry them in a way that Memphis doesn't have. Yeah, I also think the the thing that Portland's really got going for it is the nobody believes in us, no expectations, we're playing with house money factor, which makes them, you know, a little bit more dangerous. Uh, if I was the Clippers, I would definitely want to play the Grizzlies over the Blazers. I think that they've got some head-to-head matchups where they could potentially try to influence who they see, right? They do. Uh, the rest of the way. The yeah. I think it's the so, second-to-last game of the Clippers season is against Memphis. It's the game between, I think, the two Memphis Warriors games. And... Yeah, so it's hilarious because OKC plays Portland one more time, and I think they should try to lose that game intentionally. And a week later, the Clippers play the Grizzlies, and they should give that back and lose to lose that game intentionally. And <laughs> totally. so the, the tanks uh, would the tanks would balance. But they're yeah, I mean, because as good as Memphis has played, and I've been very impressed with it, they're just not at that same group. And what I would say on the Blake question, and I, I believe I said this at the time, I, I never really engaged much in that argument because I thought it was silly, is Blake Griffin makes the Clippers better by a smaller degree than he would do on a lot of other teams. But to argue that he does not make them better is ludicrous. Definitely. And I think there's times where like when Chris is all the way on and the other guys are just hitting the wide open shots that he's creating, or you're getting like good Jeff Green night, there are definitely nights where they don't miss Blake at all. But it's the ugly nights. It's that long stretch in March where they're taking double-digit losses to every single contender, whether it's Golden State, Oklahoma City, San Antonio, Cleveland, Atlanta. Right down the list, they lost to all those teams in early March by double digits. Those are the nights where that team is so much more competitive if Blake's on the roster than without him, even if it means they've got to rejigger the offense and even if it means things get a little bit more cramped and, and maybe DJ gives back some of his scoring. Maybe Reddick doesn't get quite as many touches. Uh, they're just a better, more stable, more reliable team uh, with Blake out there. And, and I agree with you. I thought it was kind of a silly uh, topic of conversation, but I guess that's what we get this time of year. I mean, part of it, I think, is you know we know who these teams are, right? Like, I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on you know, who are the legit championship contenders in the league this season. And it's almost like let's just hit the fast forward button to the playoffs. Yeah, I I think that's true, and also for me as a somebody who is fascinated with pick protection and all that, the Clippers actually have one of the crazier ones in the league, I'll mention in a second, but even on that end, I think it's pretty well settled. I mean, there are some teams that will win and lose games that will be surprising just because that happens every year, you know, a team wins a couple too many and knocks themselves out, but the Clippers thing that hasn't, it hasn't gotten attention because it's weirdly nuanced, is that 
if they had finished with one of the league's five best records, their second-round pick, so we're talking seconds here, we're not talking first, their second-round pick would have gone to Cleveland. But since it looks like they're going to finish with the sixth-best record, they actually swapped that pick with the Brooklyn Nets, who a tire fire still. So they're actually going to get a pretty solid set of draft assets this year in a year where the the talent isn't super great, but at least you're getting cheap guys that can, if you can draft well or you can package them into something else, can be a useful piece for them next year. And it's kind of funny how just sliding, losing those games in mid-March actually made that happen. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, they need everything they can get. What are the odds that those guys are going to be rookies on next year's Clippers roster or if they're going to be, uh, you know, played for somebody else? I think that's the... That's the question we've got to ask, right? Well, yeah, and how much money are they going to pay Jeff Green this summer? <laughs> oh God! Like that's an early, well, early. That's an early front runner. If I'm going to make a blind bet on worst contract, you know, not knowing the player, not knowing the team, or even for some guys the market, I would say that has pretty solid odds of being the worst contract signed this summer. Yeah, that's really scary to think about. Actually, I hadn't even considered that, but you're right. Do you know the other one? This is something that I'm amazed it hasn't gotten as much attention. I alluded to it in a a, a couple pieces, including one for Real GM. So as a weird CBA thing, so the Clippers acquired Austin Rivers and the Pelicans had declined his option. So that meant they could only pay him a certain amount for for this season because you can't go more than the option year because otherwise it would be a, a way to kind of work around the rookie scale and the league doesn't want that for obvious reasons. So... The way they did it was they gave him a player option for the second year. And so you're like, okay, you know, it's about $3.2 million, something in that range, 3.3, I think. They have full bird rights on Austin Rivers, and they have very few other ways to spend money. I think Austin Rivers, especially considering who his, his negotiation counterpart will be, he might also get one of the craziest contracts of the summer. Totally, and they kind of get which is weird. Like He's kind of got them over a barrel, doesn't he? He does. Because the Doc has basically made him their backup point guard, and they don't have a lot of other ways to get another point guard, because especially in this year where nobody's going to be on the market, you are not going to be able to get somebody for, let's say, the mid-level exception, even if they're not paying the taxpayer mid-level exception. You're not going to get anybody decent unless they're choosing to play for you and take that kind of a pay cut. And when you're playing behind Chris Paul, that's not really a chance to showcase yourself. Well, let's talk one more Chris Paul summer idea. Because you had mentioned that, you know, the trading concept. The more the drama circles in Cleveland, the more I think the Chris for Kyrie trade makes. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that you what you would want if you're Cleveland is some sort of understanding. Obviously, it can't be written. It can't be formally agreed to that he would come back because as great as Chris Paul is, it's not worth it for a rental when you consider the other pieces that they have. But if he's willing to stay the next, let's say, like two, three years on that team, you have to consider it because he's such an incandescent offensive talent. And while from a basketball perspective, in isolation, you would wonder how the fit would work with LeBron, they have a really strong personal connection. And what I found is that the basketball issues can be overcome by personal connections. Well, that's where I'm going with it, because I, I think it's a situation where, you know, the, the Cavaliers has basically zero leverage when you're talking about it, that type of a trade, right? Like, if one goes to them and says, hey, I want to resign here, but if I re, you know, there's just too big of an age gap. There's almost like a generational gap between us. Uh, I don't see him having the all-around skills defense-wise. We're not getting the most out of his offense because I've got the ball in my hands a lot. 
uh, and just personality-wise, we're not clicking. It's not working. The locker room's miserable, et cetera, et cetera. I want you to trade him for Chris. Cleveland doesn't have a choice, right? I mean, if they're still trying to – I mean, they're still under the gun trying to, to win a title no matter what. Uh, you know, if that's the proposition that LeBron brings to them, uh, because that's his buddy, that's who he wants to play for. He wants to play with a guy who's the same age, who has the same values about trying to win, the same commitment uh, to the sport, same need to to kind of prove to people that, you know, the game, you know, the, the Warriors haven't passed them by. Uh, you know, if that's the proposition, what is Cleveland going to say? They're just going to have to do it. I mean, they don't really have a choice. Uh, so to me, I, that's how I could see it playing out. Uh, the question is, like, does Chris want to leave L.A.? You know, like, as a city, where his family is, where his kids are, to go play in Cleveland. I mean, I think that's the, the toughest part of this whole situation for LeBron is that he chose to go home to Cleveland, and nobody else really in their prime is going to want to go to Cleveland. You know, They, they didn't, they didn't even when he was in his prime, you know? Exactly. exactly. And, and would you? I mean, just ask yourself, like, would you want to go from where you live in the Bay to go work and write in Cleveland? It applies for everybody, and it's not a huge knock on the city. I enjoyed my time there during the playoffs. It's got a lot going for it, uh, but, you know, these guys are millionaires who can pretty much, you know, dictate where they want to live and, and what they want to do, and, you know, it's got a pretty good setup in Los Angeles. If you're Chris Paul trading all that in just to play with your buddy, that is kind of a tough ask. Especially and when you have a family. Put, oh, for sure. You, you got to sell it to the wife. You got to sell it to the kids. And let's be honest, when push came to shove last time, you know, it was LeBron who went to Miami, you know, and everybody didn't join him in Cleveland. So I think that's the one hang up to that trade, but I think it makes so much sense for Kyrie. I think it makes so much sense for the Clippers, big picture. Uh, and I think it makes so much sense for the Cavaliers too. I think the only, the only variable that maybe I would have reluctancy would be Chris Paul. But the more that there's kind of the negative, uh, spin coming out of Cleveland between LeBron and his fellow co-stars, the more sense that trade makes me. And it's the same issue with Carmelo. I mean, Melo, if if he really, if he wanted to go, that's a trade, again, that you can make hap- happily because there are players on Cleveland to make the salary work that the Knicks would rather have than Carmelo Anthony. I mean, however you want to piece it together, there are ways to make that happen. So yeah, if they want to do the banana boat reunion, that's certainly possible. The only, incidentally, the only guy who would have to sacrifice is Dwayne Wade, the, one of the guys who sacrificed the first time. But there, yeah, and I think why those trades, the Cleveland idea is so compelling is that all of the other teams, all of the teams that would need to facilitate it, from a team perspective, it makes sense for them. Doc Rivers, if, if they came to him with a Chris Paul for Kyrie Irving trade, to me, you have to say yes to that because Kyrie's under contract. He's younger. He aligns better, I would say, with Blake Griffin. He obviously doesn't with DeAndre, but you can do that, and you're you're narrowing your window in the short term, but you're lengthening it in the long term in a way that is really good for Fure LA because even if you are the rosiest on the Lakers and there's you know and when D'Angelo and Julius Randle and if they keep their pick, you know all that kind of stuff. It's going to take them some time, and Kyrie makes makes it basically assured that you will that they will have to take it from you that you will not give LA to them. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the Lakers situation has, to me has really changed here because of this D'Angelo Russell drama. And I know you probably don't want to get into it too much. Uh, I just think from a big picture perspective, when you look ahead to the free agency, their entire presentation to A-list free agents is different than it was 24 hours ago. You know, previously, you know, you're telling people like, you know, DeMar DeRozan, Kevin Durant, like, hey, you know, we've got some young pieces here. We're building a core. You can come be the face of it. Uh, you know, it's going to be your team. Assume the mantle from Kobe, huge market. 
uh, and all these things. Now with this Russell situation, you've got a big time question mark in, you know, he is their franchise player basically next season. I mean, clearly he's got more upside than Randall or Clarkson or anybody else on the roster. He's sort of the guy they're building around, you know, unless they land Simmons in, the, in this year's lottery. I mean, he's sort of their guy. And that leadership position, the point guard position, is now being manned by a guy who is you know, basically a locker room leper. Uh, when you tape your teammates' private conversations without letting them know, let it out to you know, the media, intentionally or not, doesn't really matter. I mean, that is the kind of thing that does not play in NBA locker rooms, does not play in any professional sports locker rooms, the kind of thing that sticks with you for years. I mean, you're the guy that did that. and That's how people are going to know. There's already immaturity uh, questions around him, you know, lots of buzz, you know, here locally about how he conducts himself, how he carries himself. You know, is he really ready to assume the responsibilities of you know, the franchise once Kobe leaves? And now if you're a, and it's not like he's the only question too, by the way, because you also have question mark at the coaching position. You also have a big time question mark in the front office with Jim Buss and just the overall ownership situation. You've got, uh, you know, multiple years here of questionable moves. Uh, from the front office. And so now those questions extend all the way down to sort of the prize of the roster. Guys like Kevin Durant and DeMar DeRozan. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, Russell taping Nick Young's goofiness is like immediately takes the Lakers off their list. But I definitely think it changes the equation because it paints the Lakers as this organization of just, you know, dysfunction, disarray, no direction, uh, almost chaotic. And, you know, risky to a certain degree. I mean, if you're a proven commodity in the NBA, do you trust the Lakers, you know, as your home for the next, you know, however many years? Personally, I wouldn't. I'm going to make an analogy that I think you're never going to have seen coming. And it is to Rick Perry's oops moment during the 2012 campaign. And the idea is that the most <laughs> catastrophic mistakes that anybody makes in public relations are things that confirm somebody's perceived weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses of the Lakers as an organization is just their ability to stay out of their own way. And D'Angelo Russell, you know, I don't know, I don't know all the circumstances. One of the perks of being on vacation is I've missed this story a little bit. But what I do know about it and, and what I've heard is that it does tie in with that. And yeah, it's not the Lakers fault as an organization that he did this stupid thing. But it's just another reason for somebody who's making one of the biggest decisions of their life to be sitting there and go, huh, maybe I shouldn't go there. And the idea with these elite guys, with the Kevin Durant's of the world, the Russell Westbrook's of the world, is that you have to be first. Being second, being third, being ninth doesn't matter because you have to be better than every other team. And anything that gives somebody pause is seriously worth considering. Well, very well said. I agree with that completely. And now, you know, I think the backup was like, look, you know, we, we've been in a transition, but at least we've got the roster pieces to kind of give you that peace of mind. And I think now you're looking at Russell and you're saying there is nothing peaceful about playing with this guy. You know, what's he going to do? Like, you know, take my reactions you know, after the game. I mean, you know, where does it end? So, yeah, I think that it, it's a very damaging situation. And there's been a lot of really weird things this season. And I think that ultimately, big picture, this is the worst because I think the way it's going to play with other players, it's going to have lasting impacts and it's going to reflect on the entire organization. It's not just the D'Angelo Russell problem. And he's going to be there. Like they're not in they're not in a position of authority where they can move him. You know where they can go. Oh, you know we're going to do that. Especially considering you can make an argument, and I would that right now he looks better than every guy in this draft. 
So it's not like if you're you're sitting there and you can go, oh, you know, we'll just move him on and we'll get a similar player that doesn't have the same baggage. I don't think they can pull that off, and that's a yeah. challenge. Well, for sure. Now his trade. And sorry to cut in real quick. Go ahead. His trade value is obviously tanked. You know, it's almost a toxic situation. So you can't trade him immediately, even if you wanted to. But you also can't keep both him and Nick Young on the same team. Like, there's just practical realities here. So they're going to have to figure out how to move past Nick Young, like as soon as possible or as soon as prudent. And then they're going to have to, you know, basically almost take a straw poll with his teammates and see who's okay with continuing to play with him, like who can forgive him, who can move past it, because this is a huge breach of trust. It's a huge breach of locker room etiquette. It's not to be taken lightly. And they're just even, you know, being around him is going to make some of these guys uncomfortable because as soon as they see him, they're going to be thinking, oh, you know, what's he up to? You know, is this a guy who I really want to go to war with? And the toughest part about it for them is that point guard is the position who's supposed to rally the troops, right? Um, for everything that we say about Chris Paul's tough personality, competitiveness, everything we say about, oh, Russell Westbrook, you know, uh, he's a little bit out of control sometimes. I mean, all these knocks that we have on other point guards around the NBA are nothing compared to the idea that you wouldn't want to spend a single minute with him because you're afraid he's going to violate your privacy, you know? And so that's, it's a tough spot for the Lakers. But, yes, I mean, on pure talent, he's still their guy. They're going to have to stand by him. Uh, clearly, they've stood by higher-profile players like Kobe Bryant through even uglier situations in the past. Uh, this isn't the Lakers' first rodeo by any stretch, but it's going to it's going to require a lot of patience. It's going to require a lot of time. And hopefully this is the wake-up moment for D'Angelo Russell. I mean, hopefully he finally gets it because uh, you know, it's kind of these things have been trickling out this season, and he's just kind of getting in his own way. Uh, and he's too talented to let, you know, his personality uh, dictate his reputation. He should be letting his game dictate his reputation. And on top of everything, basketball is such an interpersonal game that everything matters. You know, a, a beef about money, you know, you can go back even to what the wizard, the whole wizard situation. And I'm not, I'm not saying this is as bad as that is in any way, shape or form, though I did find it funny that I think I saw Gilbert Arenas commented on it, I, I believe. And the idea, though, is that it's a delicate ecosystem, and we've seen great teams fall apart largely because of personality. That is something that has happened before that is stitched into the fabric of the NBA. And that means that as silly as it may sound, as juvenile as, as it may sound, it matters. And it, it, he does have the ability to rehab his, his image, and if the Lakers sold quickly or sold low on him, I would I think it would be smart you know, for a team to do that, as long as you are in the right position. You know, there are teams that that would be a bad decision for. And you can get out of that. I mean, he's a teenage kid. They make mistakes. We all did it. You know, if, if everything that I did when I was 19 and 20 like, had that sort of an impact on my life and my career, I wouldn't be where I am today, and I think most people are in the same boat. But at the same point, he is. And he knew that this isn't anything, this isn't something that blindsided him that his actions matter. And from what I know, the biggest mistake in all of this is just the idea of like wanting to do that in the first place. You know, it's kind of one of those things where the worst case scenario happened, but you opened the door by making an unnecessary decision. Yeah, I mean, and people are going to say, well, it's actually Nick Young's fault or you know, give, cut D'Angelo a break. Maybe he was hacked or maybe somebody else published it or whatever. And, you know, the bottom line is it's just poor decision-making from him. And it's not even the poor decision or, like, that he walked into this trap that maybe he couldn't have seen because he's too young to understand it. To me, the, the bigger violation is just sort of 
quote like the bro code. You know what I mean? You just don't do those kinds of things. And there's going to be, you know, veteran players, not even veteran players, basically everybody who's going to look at D'Angelo like he's almost like a tabloid reporter, you know? Especially when he's in L.A. Exactly, because usually it's us against them, right? And the time where the reporters aren't in the locker room, that's the private time. Anything goes. Everybody can make jokes. And there's so many people who are trying to get access into the locker rooms now in various ways, behind-the-scenes documentaries, you know, reality TV shows, you know, just go right on down the list, right? These guys value their privacy so much, as they should, you know, even more so than the average human values, and and we all value our privacy a lot. And to have your teammate be the one who does it, it's just going to sting. And some people might be thinking, oh, you're making too much of it. I just promise you I'm not. That's just not how professional athletes think, especially when you're sort of the guy who's on the cover of Sports Illustrated with Kobe, you know, potentially you're the you're the guy who's going to take the reins, right? You got to do better than what he, what he's doing by a lot. And I assume before the game tonight he's going to issue an apology. You know, he should. He better. And, and the fact that he ducked the reporters today at shoot around is not great. He better come correct with the apology as soon as possible. Yeah, and as I as I mentioned interrupting your answer regrettably is that it's a, it's a lot different also when you're in a glamour city and you're going to be there for a while because there are people who will choose to go to L.A. because of the lifestyle. You know, that's part of I'm sure that was a part of what has drawn people to Miami for years, the Knicks, the Lakers, of course. And so if those people see that potential as being a liability for them in a way that they hadn't considered before, that takes some of the bloom off the rose. And that matters. You know, it, it could be small. It, it might not be a ton, but it could matter. Yeah, and guys aren't rushing to play with, you know, young point guards as it is. You know, if they were, everybody would be going to play with Damian Lillard in Portland, you know? I mean, there's different situations around the league where, you know, once a guy's established himself as the alpha dog, he's, he's kind of proven that he can rush and win games consistently. That's when you start to attract other players, right? The Lakers have none of that right now, and now they have a big question mark as sort of the face of their roster. It's tough. Again, it speaks to the organization's culture though and you gotta wonder like when does management truly step in here uh, and whether it's you know clean house or just hire a coach who's going to have you know a more orderly locker room because that's the great irony right like byron scott's this like law and order guy who's real tough and all this you know huge tough talk and being you know hard on the young guys and everything and what does he get from it you know the ugliest locker room situation the league has seen this season yeah we're gonna change gears to a more relevant set of teams in the Eastern Conference. And I guess the best way to put this right now is it's really in flux other than I would say the one and two seeds. Maybe it's more about seeding than about who makes it in. But so, well, I guess start at the bottom. Do you think the Pistons end up making it as the last team? Well, I think so. I mean, it's so tricky because, okay, so seven, eight, and then potentially nine, I guess maybe the better way is to say who's going to be on the outside. And I, I don't really see Chicago making a push back into it. Things have just deteriorated so badly. And I think Washington has kind of reached the, and they're kind of past the point of no return where it gets really hard to make up the number of games they need to make up. So I think the eight teams that are in currently have a really good shot of being the eight that stay. And it kind of comes down to Detroit or Indiana in terms of you know, the seeding there. But yeah, I think Detroit, is a pretty compelling number eight seed. Of those two matchups, I think I'd probably rather see Detroit play Cleveland in the first round. I don't know, mostly just to kind of get you know a, a strategic test for the, for the Cavaliers from Van Gundy. Uh, not to say that you know that's not a knock on Vogel, but I just I, I kind of like to see it maybe uh, a little bit more than the other way. But I wonder if you're Toronto in that two seed, like which of those two teams would you rather see? Like, do you want to deal with Paul George uh, if you're not 
you know, 100% healthy with Carroll and Lowry? Would you prefer Detroit just because their guys are maybe younger and you know, less experienced and still kind of learning, you know, learning how to play with each other after that Tobias Harris trade? I think if you're Toronto, you'd probably rather play Detroit. If you're Cleveland, does it really matter? I, I think they probably win either one of those series easily. But from an entertainment value standpoint, I think I'd probably rather see Cleveland play Detroit. I think Indiana matches up really well with Toronto. They have defense at the right spots and they have they start two bigs so the penetration part of Toronto's game is a lot less effective I actually think that's the series that Indiana could definitely win especially if Toronto is less than 100% which looks likely the Pistons I don't really think of them as 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 good as the Pacers I think that's more of a ceiling issue than a floor thing and they're both well coached so this isn't a circumstance of you know what one team is playing way over their head or something I think Vogel's underrated though I love Stan Van Gundy also Detroit has played Cleveland very well this season. I think they beat them once, maybe beat them twice, but at least played them well the two times I can remember. You know, they're versatile. They don't really have a true guy for LeBron James in that sense, but I, I think that the least interesting of those four potential series would be Pistons-Raptors. So yeah, I would lean towards going the way that you would for in terms of enjoyment. And, I mean, I, I want to see every team do well, but the idea of Indiana really having that series this year as somebody who really likes where their core is going, that could be a huge showcase for them to possibly get maybe a free agent this summer that wouldn't maybe be as interested in them to say, hey, maybe I should consider them. And the guy that I've thought about for that is Harrison Barnes. Well, so real quick with the Raptors, I mean, the big storyline in Toronto during All-Star Weekend was how afraid all the Raptors fans were of getting the Bulls, like in a 2-7 or or 1-8, you know, back then. I think both were possible. And I think what you're saying about the matchups with Indiana or just like the, the nature of the team, uh, it's pretty similar, right? I mean, you got the big-time wing who is going to cause problems for the Raptors personnel if it's Paul George or it's Jimmy Butler. Uh, you've got the experience factor, the veteran factor of having won in the playoffs before, which has been a huge bugaboo for the Raptors. And that's really why the fans are so scared is because they're worried their, their team style of play is going to fall apart uh, kind of under the postseason lights and, uh, you know, guys like Lowry and DeRozan can't do what they do during the regular season during the playoffs, whereas, you know, clearly you know, Indiana's basic core guys and Chicago's basic core guys have sort of been there, done that before. So there is some parallels there where I don't know if Raptors fans would be as excited maybe as I thought they would be if they dodged Chicago just because Indiana, you know, in a different way represents some of those same concerns and same fears. And, yeah, I'm with you. I think that's a pretty compelling upset pick. Uh, you know, three to six is so tight in the East, it's hard to even know, you know who's going to be favorites, who's going to be underdogs. But I think Toronto is going to probably enter the playoffs with a lot of buzz about uh, are they going to be the, the top seed that goes down early. Yeah, and so if you're thinking about three to six, to me, in terms of what you want to see and what we expect to see, one of the big questions is kind of who do you want on the same side of the bracket as the Cavs and who do you want on the opposite side? And so for me, Boston is a team that I do not want on the same side. We already saw that series. There's some kind of weird bad blood between those two teams in a way that I don't find interesting. Like Clippers-Warriors is an example of teams that don't particularly like each other, and I enjoy it. Grizzlies-Clippers can be kind of that road. But the Celtics, it, you know, there's the, the Linux thing and the love thing, but I just I don't have that. And also J.R. Smith hitting Jay Crowder in the face. I, I don't see that as being as interesting. Also, I think that's a really bad series for Boston. So I'd prefer them to be in the 3-6 series for that reason. Beyond them, I think all of those teams are compelling for their own reasons. And what I like about the East is that, excluding Cleveland, especially if the Raptors are hurt, 
all these teams have high ceilings, and I think they have relatively even ceilings, so we could just see some fun series, and, you know, some will probably be five gamers, but you could see some really compelling stuff. Uh, totally. I see a lot of parity in there, and that should make for seven-game series where, you know, most of these teams should be able to protect home court fairly well. Uh, you know, you look right from three to eight, and you just look at the home records, all those teams are basically winning two-thirds of their home games, so that's a good sign, you know, entering the postseason, and a lot of those teams are struggling on the road, either, you know, sub-500 or right around 500, so that tells you, you, I mean, you could have a lot of series going, you know, six if not seven games, and you know, that's really where the fun is going to be in the East to me, because, the talent level is just not there compared to the West. I mean, I think the one matchup that really pops to me of, of any possible matchup would be Miami getting on the opposite side for Cleveland in the bracket. So now you're potentially setting up a Cavs Heat Eastern Conference Finals. I think that would be the NBA sort of best case scenario from a rating standpoint out of the East. And I think storylines, buzz, and even like, you know, positional matchups, I think that's probably the best that the East could hope for. That would be fun. From a basketball nerd perspective, I would really like to see a Hornets-Cavs series just because the, the personnel and be a nice test for Batum. But I think that's more of a second-round series than a conference final series. So, if, you know, if they went in the... I, I think if they were in the 4-5, they would have a decent chance of winning it. And it's going to be... Yeah, I, I mean, so Atlanta, I'm really happy that... I'm happy and impressed that they've done well. But... I don't see them as I see them as being a team that could, you know, make the conference finals, but not as a team that would really threaten Cleveland in the same way because their strengths are more controllable than, let's say, Miami's in that sense. And maybe even Indiana, just because I don't think Indiana's even gotten that close to their ceiling yet. Yeah, it's really tricky. I mean, like, I guess I'm looking at it through the lens of, like, which of these teams do I actually think could push the Cavaliers? And. I mean, you can kind of, like you're saying with the parity factor, like you can almost toss yourself into a lot of these teams being able to do it. But I, I think the memory of last year's Eastern Conference Finals is just really burned into my head. I was just really disappointed by that series in the last couple of games, you know, where LeBron is just so much more physically imposing than everybody that's being thrown at him. And Atlanta just had no team concept to be able to really stop him or slow him down in any meaningful way. It really just kind of felt like an AAU atmosphere where the very best player on the court is winning. It doesn't matter, you know, what the other team is even doing. And that's not that fun to me. You know, like watching LeBron challenged against, you know, the Spurs in the finals a couple of years ago or the Warriors last year. I mean, that's really intriguing, like fun gospel. Like that's what I like to see from, you know, this once in a generation type put to the test. Watching him maybe that are sort of like, you know, not great is less compelling and, uh, it just kind of all runs together. I guess my hope is that Miami would be able to push him a little bit because, number one, like Spolstra knows everything that he's trying to do, right? Like he knows him inside and out. I think, you know, number two, they've got some pieces on the perimeter defensive-wise where they can throw different looks at him. Uh, they've got a shot-blocking presence that they can use inside, whether you trust him to kind of hold up throughout an entire playoffs or not, you know, mentally and, and all the other things. And that's on Whiteside. Like he's at least there uh, to man the paint. Uh, and then you've got a lot of experienced, trusted veteran pieces who are pretty much known quantities. And they're all playing pretty well together right now. You know, they're really having a nice second-half surge. And you're getting some, like, found money from guys like Josh Richardson who basically aren't missing three-point shots at all. And so now you've got a little bit of firepower that you maybe weren't expecting. I'm not saying that I think Miami would beat Cleveland in a series by any stretch, but when I'm looking at these teams, like, who can really push them? Like you're saying, Boston, that's a, that's a tough matchup for Boston. Toronto, I think that you know they they pretty much get blown off the court when push comes to shove. 
Charlotte. You know, I know what you're saying basketball nerd-wise, why that would be compelling. I think it'd just be a similar situation where they just don't have the horses to stay with LeBron and everything just goes downhill from there. So to me, I, almost by process of elimination, it's Miami. Yeah. And Miami, yeah, they could be, if they got the three, that would be interesting. And one thing I've, I've been considering the last couple of days is that it seems to me like Atlanta's moving a little bit closer to feeling comfortable in the, in the three spot. And to me, what that opens up is this fascinating kind of decision process for Boston. Because if I'm Boston and the Hawks are getting the three, I would rather be the six than the five or the four. Because you get on the opposite side of Cleveland, you get a team that I think they, they feel comfortable against potentially in the first round, and you know they don't really have the right guys to throw at Horford, but they, they have a lot, of win, a lot of defense at other spots that can be fun, and I, I just feel like that would be a better matchup for them than either Miami or Charlotte. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I mean, I think if you're Boston... I think that the the value of being on the opposite side of Cleveland's bracket just so that you could potentially make that miracle run is almost worth it because the the difference between the other three teams in the first round is not gigantic. Uh, and I think matchup wise, like you're saying, I mean, if you're Boston, you're not you're not too worried about you know playing the spread style. And I think you can handle that as long as Crowder's back, you're good. Uh, I think you're going to be able to rely on their defensive identity, you know, the pressure and all that. I think that's going to work just fine against Atlanta. You know, I don't see it being like, you know, something that they would like run from, you know, I think they'd be okay with that. And I think that the greater good of avoiding Cleveland for as long as possible uh, would outweigh any short-term costs in picking either Atlanta, Miami, or Charlotte. And something else that's exciting about this playoffs is that other than the Hawks and the Heat and the Cavs, I would say, every team would have a huge benefit to winning a playoff series. Whereas in the West, you know, there it's only really downside, especially in the first round. You know, if any of the top four lose, that's devastating for them for many reasons. But in the in the East, in a wide open free agency, almost all of those teams have cap space in some form. It would be, you know, be a nice little statement thing to get on the radar. And since the East is so wide open outside of Cleveland long term, be a nice little selling point to be, hey, we can be that team. I mean, that's what Washington was hoping for forever, basically, was to be that to say, hey, if we add you in, we're going to be the contenders. And we'll, and if you're a young guy, we'll we'll be able to outlast Cleveland. And you can make that argument credibly if you're Boston, if you're Indiana, Maybe even Miami, just depending on because their situation is just always so nebulous, but they always pull guys. And so winning a series could actually really help their profile. I think it's a great point. I mean, everybody in the East is playing for July, and I think that includes Cleveland too. But just go right down the list. Toronto, DeMar DeRozan, Atlanta, Al Horford, Miami, Hassan Whiteside, Boston. They've got to decide, you know, does Isaiah Thomas get to keep the keys? Uh, you know, past the season, you know, is he going to still be that, that main scoring threat or do they have to you know, really consider, you know, pushing all their chips in and getting a bigger name guy as their, as their number one scorer? Charlotte's got to make decisions on Batum and some other players. Uh, you know, so already all those teams that we're talking about, you know, trying to position themselves have their own internal big time questions about, you know, talent retention or change of direction. Uh, so that adds huge levels of entry because if any of those teams make the conference finals, their whole story changes not only to their own guys, uh, but to anybody they're potentially recruiting. And I, I, it's the same thing really for Cleveland too. I mean, if they go to the finals, again, they're going to be in a situation where they can sort of pick and choose and make their moves uh, like they've been doing, you know, with, with quite a bit of leverage, I think, in some of these trades they've been making. 
uh, to take on salary, and they can really talk themselves into sort of this, you know, all-in approach. If they don't, I think that puts, you know, Kyrie and Kevin Love in play immediately, and, you know, potentially other pieces past that too, because, uh, you know, if it doesn't work this season, I mean, that's a disaster in my eyes. Yeah, it is, and... As much as they've kind of, you know, I would say Cleveland has disappointed a little bit from a regular season perspective, I do feel that there's not much that has happened other than, you know, some potential health stuff that has dissuaded me from their capability and favorite status in the East. You know, yeah, Toronto's been better than expected, but I still don't think that they're going to, you know, that they're a serious threat to Cleveland at this point. And what we saw last year was so incredible because they beat down the basically some of these same teams with at least one hand tied behind their back. Oh, totally. And yeah, and I go back to like, there's been lots of negative talk about LeBron's behavior, his tweets, you know, coaching on the sideline the other night, so on and so forth. But he's been backing it up on the court. You know, his numbers are up since the all-star break. There's still, you know, excellent MVP conversation type numbers. Obviously he's not going to win it this season, but he's on that short list. There's no question about it. And he's healthy. I mean, that's the other really big thing to me is you know, he hasn't been uh, dealing with the things that he dealt with last season. And if he was able to play through that stuff last year to put together the kinds of triple doubles he did in the playoffs last year, I think he's going to be able to do even more this season. And the other thing I kind of compare it to is like, is there a single team in the Eastern Conference where you compare them to, say, the Pacers from two or three years ago or the Celtics from 2012? Uh, is there any team besides Cleveland that's on those teams' levels in terms of being a real postseason threat? Because I don't see a team like that. And then to me, it's the question, well, has LeBron slipped that much from a few years ago? And I don't think he really has. Like when he's going all out in the postseason, I think he's going to be pretty much the same guy he was these last few years. And I think if he's facing weaker competition, it's almost like, what do we expect? Of course he's going to triumph over those guys. The only pause that I have of, yeah, LeBron taking a little bit of a step back is concerning is also that Mozgov is not having the effect he did. Thompson has done a very nice job this year, and I give him a lot of credit for that. He's getting a lot closer to pulling up to his contract, which is great. But Having that real defensive anchor, especially as LeBron's impact on that end has waned and will continue to wane over time, is important, especially when they're going to be healthier, because that was one of the weird dynamics with losing Kyrie and Love last year was, yeah, their offense became LeBron and the LeBrons, but they ha- they added guys like Della Vadova and Tristan playing a little bit more that actually made them a better defensive team, and this year, hopefully, they stay healthy. That's going to be something I really want to watch with them. Is So we talked earlier in this about Chris Paul and, and Blake Griffin. And so this year, if they stay healthy, we should get a much better window into what LeBron sees Kyrie's role in when, he, when they play together in big situations. And when you're talking about the arc of Cleveland as a potential title contender, as the team in the East... That is the single biggest question that needs answering. We talk about Kevin Love a lot, his frustration level is there, but Kyrie is the incandescent talent, the guy who can really change their ceiling. And so if this, if he can't really get that kind of action this year, then there isn't really much of a reason to think that that will change because LeBron, that means that LeBron sees himself as the lion in a way. Okay, so a couple of thoughts. Number one on Mozgov, I'm almost to the point with Mozgov where... I wonder if they're completely healthy otherwise, whether they even really need to play him that much. It's a close call. Like he's a 
I, I think yeah. he's a nice guy to have in case you know somebody gets into foul trouble or something like that. But at this point, Channing Frye isn't perfect, but he he does certain things yeah. that teams in the East will struggle with. And if LeBron is more willing than he has been in the past to play some four, that is, I mean, it seems like all of us have been saying for years that that was always the end game. It was just that he didn't want to do it. And so if that is willing to be open, just like the Warriors playing Draymond at center, that doesn't mean that their other centers are bad. It just opens up other possibilities. Yeah, I mean, to me, the if you go Thompson, Love, LeBron as your front line for the majority of your minutes, you're smoking everybody in the East. You know, I, I don't really see a, an East team that's going to pose huge problems for that group. Uh, and I think, you know, Channing Fry, when I when they got him, I kind of viewed him as like injury insurance for Kevin Love. But I think ultimately, like, he could just play some minutes that you were thinking about giving to Mozart because he, you know, obviously the force spreading aspect to it. Uh, and he's a little bit longer, uh, you know, and he's not an ideal, like, low post defensive center, but, you know, he's a guy you can play. So to me, I don't even know how much they need Moskov, and maybe they'll try to spread the minutes around early in the playoffs to kind of the risk for injuries for their guys. You know, I'm not so sure. The Moskov thing doesn't worry me so much. I mean, the other thing with Kyrie to remember is, like, I think he's been pretty disappointing this season. I think that's yep. pretty fair to say. And I think when I talk to people, they see him getting passed by other point guards, like on the list of the top point guards list. Like, they, you know, it's like he's losing ground or regressing against guys like, you know, Damian Lillard or John Wall or what it might be. But he only has to be better than the injured version of himself from last year to make a difference, right? And just like we were talking about with Chris Paul and how bad the Clippers are when he's not on the court, I mean, remember how many minutes LeBron had to play in last year's postseason because any time they took him off the court, the offense just turned to just absolute rubbish, right? And I think that's really where Kyrie is going to show his impact is when he's on the court and LeBron isn't uh, in the playoffs. You know, can you buy LeBron some more time in these first couple of rounds uh, where Kyrie is able to kind of steady the ship, uh, you know, handle some of the ball handling, you know, and initiation uh, and keep the offense going without LeBron. I think that's really what his big value adds, even more so than when they're playing together and sort of their lights out offensive lineup. That's sort of what I'm going to be looking for uh, from Kyrie because you can't, expect LeBron to outlast the Warriors in the finals or the Spurs in the finals if he's playing 40 plus a night in the first three rounds yeah he, he can't do that but I don't think he'll have to so I, I'm going to give you a, a Kyrie stat I hadn't looked this up before just now so the reason a big reason beyond his prodigious natural talent that so many of us were really high on Kyrie early on is and I'm not saying PER is the end-all be-all of stats it's just in, it's informative for this so he was, as a teenager, he that first year, even coming off the injury at Duke, he was great. He had a PER of 21.4. His career high PER for a season, so his rookie year was 21.4. His career high is 21.5. Yep. Yeah. So he just, and... he, his role has changed, but he hasn't developed that other part. I mean, like, his his usage, his role in the offense hasn't grown. His his assist rate, of course, also the surrounding talent has gotten better, so you'd expect that to drop, especially when you add LeBron James. But that peaked his rookie season. So he's a guy who still has that natural talent. They're the reasons that so many of us really fell in love with his potential are still there. But And we're going to run into this with a few other talented young guys in the very near future. When that potential is not turning into production, you have to ding the guy because that's why the potential is there. That's why you're interested in it. And once you have once you have information to, to, to kind of to inform that, 
it can either strengthen or weaken that projection. And with him, he just hasn't gotten better. Yeah, the stagnation is a little bit frustrating, and I'm sure it's really frustrating for a guy like LeBron too, because it's not just stagnation in the numbers; it's you know, in his overall production. I think it's kind of you know, there's a, a level of maturity stagnation too, right? I mean, even some of this office stuff that court stuff that's kind of come out recently. Uh, you know, if you're LeBron, you have absolutely no time for that. You know, you don't want to hear about this girlfriend and this rapper and blah blah blah. I mean, that you know, that's not part of uh, your worldview in terms of how you view yourself as a brand. It's not part of how you view the Cavaliers as an organization. It's not part of how you view this multi-year plan that you painstakingly put together, uh, you know, once you return to Cleveland. Uh, none of that should be kind of factoring into the narrative. And unfortunately with Kyrie, you know, it is. And, you know, to be sympathetic to Kyrie, that kind of stuff throw you out your game and it can, you know, take you out of your focus and it can uh, be a distraction and rightfully so, if it's people that you care about in your life. From that standpoint, like, you know, if you're LeBron, you expect Kyrie to be at a certain place in his fifth season, and maybe Kyrie's not there yet uh, from a maturity standpoint. If you're LeBron, the clock's ticking, as we talked about over and over again. And it's like, come on, guys, like, I don't need to be telling you this stuff. I don't need to be focusing you, you know, trying to keep this off course stuff to a minimum. Uh, basketball should be the only thing. And I think, you know, in some cases here, it's clearly not. There are a few p players, active players, that are more aware of how hard it is to win a championship than LeBron James. I mean, he's made the finals so many times, and some of those years it was an accomplishment to make it, like that first time with the Cavs. Other times, you know, it wasn't really an accomplishment. And then the first year with the Heat where they, you know, they probably should have won the title and didn't. And I have to imagine as somebody who is who is as passionate about the game as he as he always appears to be whenever I've talked to him, that he sees what the Spurs and the Warriors are doing and thinking, this window is tighter than I ever thought it would be. And so that also, I think it has to be straining him because he knows that they're not at that level. And he knows that, and this is not even including the, the possibility of like Durant going to the words or something like that, that Cleveland, because it's hard for them to get much better than they are right now, they're going to have to do a lot of internal improvement, whether that be maximizing their personnel or whether that be, you know, just when they squeeze out a, a mid-level exception guy, trade exceptions, all that kind of stuff. And if I would say that by most conventional accounts, including his own, not winning a championship as a member of the Cleveland Cavaliers would be a notable failure for LeBron James. I can imagine how that could be driving him a little bit nuts. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. That is what's driving him nuts. And I think it's really, if you're him, it's Kyrie and Kevin Love both kind of stagnating or not really gelling and not really coming together uh, with you as a, a dependable, like, night in, night out, we know what we're going to do against every single team and just smoke people kind of core in year two. That's really driving the frustration. Because, you know, you can go down the list of all the role players. You know, LeBron's going to have different expectations for every single guy. He's obviously going to expect a lot more from Kyrie than Della Vidova, a lot more from, you know, an all-star like Kevin Love uh, compared to, you know, a James Jones or whoever. Uh, and the fact that those three guys don't really appear to be getting the most out of each other uh, you know, this deep into year two, that's a big problem. And that's why I think both Kevin Love and Kyrie are going to be, you know, heavily involved in rumors this summer in free agency if they don't win the title. Because if LeBron, if you're LeBron, something's going to have to change so you can win a championship, right? I mean, you can't just run it back, run it back, run it back, and, and keep hitting the same wall. He's too savvy for that. He's too shrewd. 
Uh, and he understands that, you know, if these are guys who are by and large one-way players and their offensive games aren't totally gelling with his, he can probably do better. <laughs> you know, if he puts them on the market or they start shopping those guys around, they could probably find better fits uh, and they should be able to command something, you know, given their level of talent. So I think in a sense, you know, both Kyrie and Kevin, maybe not completely 100% are playing for their jobs in the playoffs this year but they kind of are, you know, it's almost like prove it to LeBron that you should be a part of this bigger picture. And along that note, from my own thought process on this, and I have no inside information, is that it would be inconceivable for me for LeBron James to leave Cleveland in the next two years. You know, maybe after that, it could get a little bit more complicated. But if you think about it, and, and you could say whether you agree with that process, that also changes the way you think about the team. Because then if it's like, th- these are the guys that I'm going to be around, then you, if especially if you think, let's say, two more seasons after this year is really the title window with them, you, there is a real sense of urgency there. Yeah, I, I don't see him leaving either. Um, although the whole like super team up idea, I think you have to give some credence to because that's the kind of powerful story that can overwhelm all the chance of traitor and you know horrible person or whatever. Like if he doesn't play with his three best friends, I think he would be able to ultimately prevail in a PR battle. Uh, they would easily be able to sell it as like, well, not easily, but they would be able to sell it as, look, there's a super team in Golden State. There's a super team in San Antonio. You know, we want to fight fire with fire. Why are you going to blame us for trying to put together a team that can compete with those teams on that level? Uh, and by the way, we've been friends since we're teenagers. We've always wanted to do this. I think they can, that, that would help him really limit the damage of, you know, bailing on uh, Cleveland for a second time. Uh, it wouldn't obviously play very well in his home state, and he'd have to answer for that in a huge way. But I think he could probably get by with that on sort of a national level. Uh, yeah, he, he wouldn't get a Ray Bork parade if he won a title, let's say it was with the Knicks. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, but, but more immediately, like, if he does decide to stay, and I think most of what he's been doing recently is sort of flexing, right? Like he's showing his influence, he's showing his power, and he's kind of laying down the line for guys like Kyrie and Kevin Love and encouraging them to realize, like, you know, don't coast into the playoffs here. Don't let up, uh, you know, don't look at this as an opportunity to, you know, just kind of bide your time until the game starts to matter. Like, you know, take your game to the next level uh, because I'm watching you and I'm trying to think about how this is going to work long term. Uh, I think that's really what a lot of what he's trying to, to do with some of this behavior is it's almost put his teammates on notice. Yeah, I I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Or we've, we've been going at this long enough. You want to sit back and watch some games? Yeah, it's about time to start some games so we can do that. Uh, but it's good chat and hope everything is good on your end. Absolutely. Thanks again. All right, man. Thanks again to Ben Golliver for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Sports Illustrated. And you can follow him on Twitter at Ben Golliver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. One of my favorites. He also does a nice job of putting up videos, which is something that I don't do, but it's another perk of following him. You shouldn't, I think there are better reasons to do it, but it's always nice to have somebody who does a nice job with that and is, of course, so knowledgeable about the sport. And having him be based in L.A. has made, made this podcast a lot more fun because he had a lot more direct knowledge on this sort of a thing than I do. And... You know, it's always great to talk to him. He's one of my favorites. And, yeah, so we'll see. We're getting now into the playoff push. There are a lot of different storylines coming on. I do want to do some of the eliminated, you know, talk about certain teams in depth, the teams that I think have the most interesting offseason. So those will be interspersed within the playoff discussions and things like that, which I think are more more important. So, you know, those will take precedent. 
probably do some draft stuff at some point as well, just because I enjoy that. And as many of you guys know, I have people that I really like to talk to about it. So that is always a nice thing as well. So if you want to give feedback, positive, negative in between, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can email me, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com. That is my email address for this sort of thing. And I also have a Facebook page, which is Danny LaRue MBA. That's not as great for feedback, but it does coalesce everything I do for various outlets, Real GM, Sporting News, Warriors World, whoever else will publish my work. And it is a place, though, to have all of that kind of in one place. And if you, you know, if you want to leave comments anywhere or everywhere, I promise to read everything. I respond to as much as I can. You know, one of the benefits of getting a little bit bigger is that I get more of that, but the downside is that I don't get to respond to everything. So I am try to always be honest, so I can't promise that I will respond, but I will promise that I will read it, so you don't have to worry about it being ignored or anything like that. So, also, if you want to support the podcast, you can review it on iTunes, you can write a review on iTunes, you can also subscribe that is a, a huge thing. So, you know, downloading every episode, downloads is a very important metric. Also, you can use the real GM code on SeatGeek. That is huge. I'm thrilled that they are a sponsor for especially something that I actually use and enjoy and think they do a really good job with that product. So you can do all those things to support the podcast and you can keep listening. And it's gonna be great to to move on forward. And of course you can do the same with the Dunked On Basketball Podcast, which I am regularly a part of. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Make your 4th of July sparkle with a little help from your friendly neighborhood Randalls. You'll find great deals on grilling favorites and more. Everything you need to make any summer gathering festive. For a delicious cookout, shop with your Remarkable card and pick up 80% lean ground beef in the value pack for just $1.99 a pound. Limit four packages. And get a sweet deal on fresh strawberries, blueberries, or raspberries, two for $3. Tastier meats, sweeter produce, better celebrations. Randalls, proudly serving Texas families since 1966. One of the best things about Randall's is all the friendly and helpful people. And now, Randall's is looking for more great employees just like you. That's right. All Randall's stores are now hiring friendly new faces to join their team. Ages 16 and up can apply today. If you or someone you know is looking for a job with flexible schedules, great benefits, career advancement opportunities, and even scholarships, then have them stop by the nearest Randall's store for more details. Randall's, it's just better. One of the best things about Randall's is all the friendly and helpful people. And now, Randall's is looking for more great employees just like you. That's right. All Randall's stores are now hiring friendly new faces to join their team. Ages 16 and up can apply today. If you or someone you know is looking for a job with flexible schedules, great benefits, career advancement opportunities, and even scholarships, then have them stop by the nearest Randall's store for more details. Randall's, it's just better.